Are you ready for the most ridiculous internet sports show you have ever seen? Welcome to React, home of the most outrageous and hilarious videos the web has to offer. So join me, Rocky Theus, and my co-host, Raiders Pro Bowl defensive end, Max Crosby, as we invite your favorite athletes, celebrities, influencers, entertainers in for an episode of games, laughs, and of course, the funniest reactions to the wildest web clips out there. Catch Reacts on YouTube, and that is Reacts, R-E-A-X-X. Don't miss it. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Regressing to the mean since 2015, it's the Hockey PDO Cast with your host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey PDO Cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and sitting across from me in my living room is, uh, is my good buddy Thomas Jantz. Feels good to say that. It's been so long since we've been able to have a public conversation and just chat about hockey together. It, it feels very weird. I'm uh, I'm still getting used to it. I'm going to have to mind my P's and Q's and, mm. and my F words in, in particular uh, now that I'm speaking about hockey publicly again. We'll see how I do. Um, hopefully, there's not too much bleeping for you to do on the editing side after we're done here. Oh, it's okay. It's a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we, can, we can talk about whatever and we can figure it out later right, in the editing perfect. process. Um, yeah, I guess it's been a while for you. Like I was telling you that, you know, I've taken a little uh, brief summer hiatus and vacation. And, and so I haven't done a podcast in whatever, five, six weeks. And I was like, oh man, I'm, I'm feeling like a little jittery, a little nervous. Like, what are we going to talk about? How am I going to handle this? What do I need to do? And for you, it's been a couple of years now. So it, it must be um, an even bigger uh, gap than, than the uh, five or six weeks that I just went through. Yeah, no, I've been I've been radio silent. I uh, don't think I've been a podcast guest in three years, although I've done a, a lot of booking guests for podcasts. Yep. Uh, it's been interesting to watch how podcasts have proliferated, um, you know, from the perspective that I just come from as a PR guy. The thing about a podcast is it's a pretty involved sort of um, media ask, right? If you're asking for player or personnel to be involved, um, you know, we're talking about minimum 20 minutes and, yep. and sort of in a isolated room and you know it's effectively like a sit down uh like you'd do for a rights holder except you know you're sort of chasing um uh, an increasingly splintered sort of audience uh, right. in doing it so you know it was something we grappled with and and something that i found pretty interesting and and ultimately something we decided to launch mm. with the florida panthers we had our own team podcast so you know there uh that's a fantastic medium and something i've always enjoyed listening to i listen religiously to podcasts yeah. including this one yeah beautiful. Um, look at that and uh and it's a lot of fun to a lot of fun to do but you know from uh it's nice to be looking forward to being a guest on one and not dreading booking a guest for one i'll, I'll say that much well i'm so jealous because like i 
uh, you know, people I've been asked like, kind of who are your, um, you know, your, your idols in the podcast game or, or sports writers or kind of what, how do you model your work after them? And, you know, Zach Lowe is someone who obviously both through his writing, which is I think unparalleled in terms of like providing useful information in like a fun and interesting way, but his podcast as well. And he always has, I mean, he has his like r- regular, um, sort of, uh, Rolodex of ESPN writers, but he also gets players and coaches on. And I guess over the years he's established like a rapport with them where they feel comfortable talking about stuff and opening up with him. Um, and I've always been fascinated about that kind of taking the next step with a PDO cast to do that with players or, or GMs or coaches. But in NHL, it does feel like there's such like a divide there between like what people are willing to speak about publicly. And, and it makes sense considering you see like as soon as someone, someone says anything out of the norm or shows any sort of personality, it becomes like such like, a di- divisive topic and uh, so polarizing that if I was a player or working for an organization, I wouldn't go out of my way to say anything remotely interesting. I would just be regurgitating all those cliches that you hear all the time on soundbites. Yeah, I think the you know the exception of the rule seems to be spitting chiclets, where players seem to feel pretty unguarded and and don't seem to take a lot of um, shit. Let's right. uh, let's dip into the swear yep. word jar early yes. um, for what they say on that podcast. And but it does seem like a you know unique space within the hockey media community, and not just within podcasts, but as a whole. Um, you know that's almost like this accountability free zone where guys can go on with Bissonette, and no matter what they say, it doesn't seem to really sort of get beyond uh, the confines of the bar stool environment. Um, but you know, in the NBA, you've got you know CJ McCollum has his own podcast, yep. and even Zach Lowe, you know, he did a podcast I think at Vegas Summer League with. Um, you know, Howard uh, Kurtz, I think, from the New York Times. And uh, and I think it was Doris Burke. And they were like drinking at a tiki bar in mm-hmm. Vegas. Yep. And you could just hear sort of the restaurant noises. And they were getting increasingly drunk as the podcast went along. Howard Beck Howard and Beck. Rachel Nichols. And Rachel I Nichols. Okay, good. Yeah, Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Um, so they, uh, but yeah, I mean, it was just weird. Like someone would drop off and you realize they were probably just mowing wings. Yeah. And, uh, you know, even that, even that, I mean, it's just Zach Lowe, Rachel Nichols and Howard Beck. But you wouldn't i feel like you wouldn't get that in hockey you wouldn't have you know your hockey equivalent to those three in a bar <laughs> eating wings yeah. and uh and drinking sugary tiki drinks um while doing a podcast it's just a sort of cultural difference and and i do think it's one that'll have to evolve because we've seen how the nba has engaged fans mm. by just being insane all the time 12 months a year so I mean, I think you provide a unique perspective now after the years you did spend with the Panthers and sort of what your job entailed on a day-to-day basis. And that's kind of what I wanted to get into this conversation about, uh, focusing on how much stuff has changed. Because you obviously, you're, for people who don't know, you're one of the blogging OGs. You you got me into the game. You've been around the <laughs> blog a couple of times. You were there in the early years. And obviously, um, the entire industry and the dialogue and sort of what we're talking about while some of it still is infuriatingly the same, a lot of it has changed over the years, of course. And so now that you have this kind of unique perspective, having dealt with like the behind the scenes and the inner workings on a day-to-day basis with a team, uh, I'm kind of curious, you can take this any number of ways, sort of what's changed for you or sort of, is there something where you have an entirely different perspective or thought process on it now where you're like, wow, now that I know this, 
I think about this stuff I see on Twitter so much more differently. Like you can take that any number of ways you want. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, there's one example that strikes me immediately. Um, you know, one thing that I think about or, or that you notice immediately when you get behind the scenes and, and work, especially with coaches, is just how differently they watch the game from you or I um, and how much they see. You know, it's uh, it's pretty remarkable. And I don't mean to do any appeal to authority stuff, but, you know, their level of detail and their attention to it uh, is really through the roof. And, you know, I have a, a specific memory where, um, you know, it was right after the you know, sort of a computer boys whole thing. And um, Bob Bugner did an interview with Pierre Lebrun in which he talked about how San Jose wasn't a possession team. Now, um, Bob is so detailed that by what he was saying by the San Jose Sharks, the team I came from, we're not a possession team, as he meant, um, we're going to flip it out of the zone yep. and trust that our speed can skate onto it and that we're going to outshoot our opponents that way. Uh, we're not afraid to dump it in because we think we have bigger forwards than other teams and we think we're going to come out with the puck. Yep. So it wasn't that what Bob meant by that was we're not obsessed with maintaining possession as we move up the ice or transition. Um, and what the internet took from that is, oh, Bob Bugner doesn't even know what the San Jose Sharks <laughs> Corsi 4 percentage is, right. right? And it was this weird feedback loop where a coach actually had sort of a more detailed an, uh, analysis of what um, a team's playing style was than the underlying numbers. And he sort of was being criticized for being old school when, in fact, it was, you know, microstat driven essentially yep. his perspective on on the club's priorities and that that's sort of something that stuck with me um just because you know we live in this sort of polarized twitter climate where people like to jump on things that don't match their particular worldview and um there's a variety of different orthodoxies out there and, and groups that subscribe to and espouse them and you know when you sort of peel deeper um you you get a lot more a lot more there's a lot more nuance that's left on the table and sometimes what looks one way um to the audience rate seeing something on twitter uh, is in fact completely the opposite and so that was one thing i really learned is um just how extraordinarily detailed uh, a lot of those coaches are and you know there's not that not that they're beyond criticism and not that coaches don't have blind spots but i do struggle with analysis now that begins with this guy's an idiot or doesn't know what he's doing um they know there's a reason for it and it would probably be worthwhile uh, for people to assume a level of competence in sort of trying to peel back layers behind decision making i, I suspect that you know as a as a whole that would improve the analysis that we're seeing in the public sphere it's so tough because I can see it from both perspectives from like, you could go to either extreme where I think you'd never want to sort of lose that like intellectual curiosity or that sort of fire to like question stuff. And, and sometimes you see you can go the complete opposite way where maybe some more established media members that, um, you know, have certain connections or certain um, resources within teams, they're never going to question those people. And so they kind of just like take whatever they tell them and pass it along to keep that rapport going with them. And then you can, it's sort of pretty transparent. You can see it from the outside and you can also be like, all right, well, just because this coach or this GM said this one thing doesn't mean we should all just be like, oh, well, they said it, so it must be true. Like you can investigate that and ask questions and peel back layers. But at the same time, there is also like, um, 
Twitter can be an echo chamber and it can be sort of like everyone's always just looking for someone to mess up. And as soon as they do or <laughs> kind of they put their foot in their mouth, all of a sudden everyone jumps on it and you start quote tweeting and going like, oh, look at this idiot. He doesn't know what he's talking about. And and it's like it's also similar from the perspective of like there's certain teams now, whether it's like the Leafs with Kyle Dubas or the Hurricanes with Eric Tulski, where they can do one thing and you go, oh, I trust these guys. What a smart, savvy move. Compared to like if a dumb team or a team traditionally that's been a bit more old school does something, you're like, oh, here we go again. They're doing the same old stuff. And so it's funny to see how like um, our our opinions can be shaped based on which team or which coach is doing or saying a certain thing. Yeah. And I think you don't want to lose, uh, you know, as someone who discusses hockey on the Internet or, um, you know, digitally. I don't think you want to lose that skeptical posture. I just think that, you know, we could soften some of our assumptions. I think the assumptions that begin, um, if you assume incompetence before you begin to do the work, that's sort of where you, I think, can run into some difficulty. And and certainly I've noticed that in, in reading coverage of the team I represented, but also in reading coverage of teams around the league. Yeah, no, I agree. I think, uh, for as far as we've come, there's definitely a, a lot of nuance. And, and it, it's interesting because obviously, um, you know, you hear stuff off the record or, or people pass along certain notes to you that um, obviously isn't publicly available information. And, and that can certainly change the way you view a certain storyline or a certain headline. And and so balancing those things is always, I guess, part part of the job for us as, as writers and analysts. But um I don't know how I feel about it, to be honest. I'm kind of, I can, I can go both ways on it where I think that's all the way I keep coming back to where it's like, it's, it's tough because on one hand, um, I'm very skeptical of what a lot of teams are doing and what a lot of stuff that's being passed around and, and sort of, uh, how much really is going into it and how much teams know compared to what's available publicly. But at the same time, um, there are certain things, I guess, that, that fans aren't privy to that would probably, if they were aware of it, would change the way they're thinking or, or talking about their favorite teams. Yeah, I think that's right. And uh, that's completely fair. And, and again, I, I wouldn't say that I, th- I think it would be a disservice, uh, to recommend that people, um, lose that, you know, skeptical edge as, as as I said, I think that it's a, a crucial tool, uh, especially when sort of digging into what hockey teams are doing in the public sphere. I mean, you're always going to be operating off of uh, limited information. Um, but more than anything, I, I guess, you know, seeing what I saw, I think that there's just a level of savvy and intelligence uh, beyond what uh, the public understands um, within the operation of, of an NHL team and um, whether that NHL team is one you think is nailing it or not. Um, the level of dedication, hard work, expertise. I mean, it's, it is really high across the board, uh, certainly everyone I dealt with. So um, that's something that I think will inform how I write going forward. And, mm. and I haven't written a piece, so I'm not going to throw stones at anyone yet. Uh, recording this on a Tuesday before I've, um, <laughs> or sorry, recording this the week before I've yeah. written uh, my first piece for the athletics. So, you know, there's, uh, there's some work to be done and I won't, I won't throw stones from my incomplete house, but right. that is one thing that, uh, that has changed my perspective, certainly from working on the inside. Yeah, I I want to stick with that for a little bit because, um, you know, I, I imagine having worked for a team, there's obviously you can't engage in certain public conversations and you can't just be as active on Twitter as you were before that. And, um, you know, I'm curious for your take on sort of, you know, especially like these like niche like arguments that happen on hockey Twitter about player X and how good they are or, or, or sort of certain metrics we're using. Um like having been out of the game for a couple of years now and then jumping back into it, um, 
like, what's your perspective on that in terms of how far we've come or um, how much work there's still to be done or just kind of stuff that people are missing when it comes to player evaluation or, or you know, team or coach evaluation? Yeah, and I think part of what interests me about that question, especially as I reacquaint myself with some of what's happened in that space and what's evolved over the past three years, you know, the fact of the matter is, is that I've been more interested in figuring out how to get on the six o'clock news on WSVN in Miami (laughs) than I have been on, um, you know, following the latest development on a summary war metric um, (laughs) that, that another site's developed. Um, You know, in looking at the landscape, I do think there's been a pretty significant brain drain. Um, I still think there's an incredible level of knowledge uh, among hockey fans, um, both those who are digging into analytics and developing new things and and also among those who, you know, are are just watching the games because I think there's. You know, savvy, savvy fans know so much about their Your teams. Your casual it's fan is so much smarter today than they so were. So much smarter ago. today. And then the other thing I'd say is it's been interesting to see in the coverage out of, for example, Seattle and in the coverage out of Minnesota in the wake of the Fenton um, firing, how analytics departments are being written about, right? Mm. They're being written about not in this sort of familiar way where it feels clubby, like you know, this media member is sort of talking about a remarkable story about some blogger who's made it, but just as if it's the ordinary, ordinary course of business for, for criticism and scrutiny, just like any other part of an NHL team's operation, whether it's pro scouting or amateur scouting or player development. And that suggests to me a level of acceptance and professionalization that that's pretty surprising. Um, and that happened really quickly. I, I don't feel like I'd read articles with that tone prior to maybe the past three, four months. Um, but that to me represents, um, the level, a level of establishment, um, for the field that I think is a huge win and it might be a mundane win, right. but it's a real thing. And, um, that's sort of one change that I think uh, I certainly noted and, and noted with wide eyes. Mm. Um, but you know, in terms of the field itself, I think, you know, I, have remained a little bit old school in terms of <laughs> looking at some of the, it's weird to call myself old school now, but the, you know, um, CF percentage PDO, <laughs> you know, right. um, the way that that all fits together, the assumption of relatively fixed percentages at five on five, um, you know, that stuff all still matters a lot to me. And, you know, I, I suspect in, in digging into some of those summary stats and, and I've got a lot of work and studying up yet to do, and I'm not drawing any conclusions and I, I won't draw any conclusions for several months, but in looking through that, I haven't seen something that has to this juncture caused me to disabuse myself of my prior assumptions, which is, you know, some of those what what I'd now call surface level underlying metrics, right? I mean, yep. that's a little bit of a of a oxymoron, but the the basic stuff at this point um, still to me feels a lot more useful uh, than some of the descriptive summary metrics that seem to be on vogue in hockey analysis these days. Well, while I certainly agree that, that there's been a sort of broader acceptance of like this idea that you know analytics has a place in hockey, and and there's at least I think every team has at least like one person now that's doing some form of analytics for them and within their staff. Um, I still think there's such a far way to go in terms of, if you think of it from the perspective of like comparing it to, let's say like a scouting staff where it's like, 
wouldn't it be insane if you suggested to someone that, oh, you're going to have one pro scout who's just going to cover all 31 NHL teams or 30, the 30 other teams, and they're just going to do their own thing, and then they're going to file reports to the GM, and that's going to be the extent of our scouting operation. And I, people would be like, well, that's insane. There's no way one person could possibly handle that much information and that much work. And that's what's happening with a lot of NHL teams still with their analytics, quote-unquote, departments, where it's like one or two people that are just like, tasked with this amount of, inform- of of work and data that they need to sort through and then they're passing it along and who knows how much it's even being listened to by some old school GM. So I think there's a couple teams that are certainly building out actual staffs with four, five, six different people who are um, in a being put in a position to succeed in a creative workplace where they're asking each other questions and building and challenging each other. But there's still, for a lot of these teams, there's still um, like another step to be taken beyond just that superficial, like, let's just get one person so that we can point at them and say, hey, we're doing analytics. Well, absolutely. And, and I do think also the way that that information flows. I mean, yeah. you know, if you're building out a new department and calling it crucial to your hockey operations department, I mean, how does that information flow from XR&D guy, maybe through a director or not, maybe through an AGM or, or through a GM and then filter down to pro scouts, amateur scouts, coaching staff. I mean, you know, that's a, that's a tricky sort of thing to figure out, uh, especially in, you know, a... Uh, environment where analytics has been seen as aberrant or Hmm. different or distinct or something to be compartmentalized within uh, the usual flow of operations. So, you know, I I mean, there's no question that there's work to be done, but that level of, you know, public acceptance, that uh, boring article about how, you know, the Seattle expansion team is going to flesh out an analytics department or, you know, how um, an analytics department's information float or didn't within a front office and how that contributed to uh, an owner's decision to fire a GM after 11 months. I mean, that's a level of, that's a, that's just a level of acceptance that analytics have never had. And the fact that it's rote now, the fact Mm -hmm. that it's boring, the fact that it's discussed, you know, the way that, um, a coaching decision would be, or, or a player development issue, or, you know, a club's persistent track record, misidentifying targets on, uh, in terms of pro scouting. Um, you know, that to me, it, that to me just feels like a huge sea change from where we were. Certainly when, when you and I got started, uh, back in 2013. Are you excited about, uh, jumping headfirst back into, uh, online debates about whether a certain player is good or not? <laughs> yeah, I'm, uh, I'm sharpening, um, my takes as I, as I, as we speak, I, uh, I need to find, you know, this September's Julius Honka yeah. or, uh, Chris Russell. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, you know what? I loved that. I've always loved the, especially when it's done in good humor. I, mm-hmm. I love that sort of like wrestling mentality that, that can come from hockey debates. And, yeah. and I actually think most hockey writers are pretty funny about them. Um, I think a lot of hockey Twitter is really funny about them. I think people don't take it that seriously. Um, and, and I think that's something that's a little bit unique about the Vancouver market too, is the way that people decide that they're on a specific team and then rep that team and sort of just stand for it. Like yeah. they cape for whomever. Right. And you know, now you have what people are, I, I mean, I have people in my mentions to this day, uh, just talking about nothing who are, you know, I self identify in their Twitter bio as a betting pro. And I just love that. It just feels like, you know, uh, Team Gilly, or yeah. remember Team Luongo and Team right. Schneids, and yeah. um, there were people who were Team Coho, meaning Team Cody Hodgson. Yeah. Um, 
it, it goes on and on. And, and I think that that's fun. I mean, that's got to be good for everybody because that's the sort of thing that keeps people engaged and, and promotes the sport. It was really, that's why it was really funny seeing when the Leafs acquired Cody CC. It was really funny to see, you know, there's, there, there was like some self-aware at least fun, fans fun obviously to see that were like, fun to CC. There you go. <laughs> Look at you. Prime, prime. It's even for him. Um, Crushing it. Where there was, there was some obviously we were like, I don't know why the Leafs did this. This is questionable. Like just cause he's in a leaf now, I'm not going to suddenly flip flop completely. But then there's like, obviously you're extremely Homer fans that are like, well, the more I think about it, CC's <laughs> definitely got the physical tools. And it's like, you were literally making fun of him and the senators <laughs> like religiously for the past five years. Like what? And it's, it's obviously now, as soon as he's part of your team, it's like, he must be good. Yeah, uh, the whole, the whole trick is to root for laundry, right? That's yeah. what you're, that's what, that's what being a fan is all about. And, you know, I understand fans who just want to view it positively, right? They just want to turn their TV on two, three times a week and, and root for the home team and believe that their home team is, is well-managed. And, you know, that's part of what they're rooting for. And so I understand those incentives. I mean, I think that's, I think that's good and wholesome and, and fun. And I don't think that anyone looking critically, as much as I'd like to say that we need to assume a level of competence, yeah. I don't think anyone who's committed to breaking down the game or, or looking critically at how a team functions, uh, makes decisions, um, goes about trying to win games, uh, can afford <laughs> to, to um, agree with that perspective or, or follow it too closely. But it's weird because I was talking about this with you um, before we were recording. Uh, we were talking about SL Lindell specifically, but you know, you go through this internal struggle as as an analyst, but also as someone who just watches hockey where it's like, once that signing happens uh, over the summer and, and the stars extend him, um, you know, people instantly put out the charts of his underlying numbers and his heat maps and, and how it's like, oh, his number underlying numbers aren't actually good. And, and you can certainly argue, like, in terms of, like, based on the dollars for, like, the output you're getting, you know, whether it's a good value, whether it's a good deal and so on and so forth. But sometimes, like, there's a certain players I enjoy watching that play where I understand why they're valuable. And I'm like, yeah, it's a good player. Like, I'd, I would like that player on my team, even though necessarily you can't point to one singular number that goes like, this is why. And it's weird because I used to, I, I completely understand, like, the hypocrisy. I usually used to be the guy who, like, would just trash writers for, like, latching onto their guys and loving them, even though the numbers didn't support it. But now as you watch more and more hockey, you, you do sort of kind of gravitate to certain players and sometimes it can be irrational and I think there, that can be okay too without necessarily having to justify every single opinion with a certain metric. Totally. And you know, I, I was thinking, I, I don't know why, but I was thinking today about um, Brian Campbell and I was thinking about how Brian Campbell got every guy he ever played with paid, right? right. That was Brian Campbell's, uh, the gift that Brian Campbell gave every pairing partner he had. And, you know, I was, I was sort of turning it over in my head and thinking, well, you know, if there's a Brian Campbell of NHL front offices, it's probably Eric Tulski, <laughs> right? Yeah. But uh, I also was, you know, when you brought up Bessel and Della, I also go back to that just because I remember thinking every second pairing guy uh, who played for the Panthers during Brian Campbell's sort of prime run with Florida, and this was well before I was there. I, you know, I, I remember thinking, oh, that guy's bad, right? Yeah. His Corsi Ralph's right. awful. Um, but you know, the fact is, is anytime Brian Campbell was on the ice, your team had the puck in the offensive end. So that's going to make your numbers look worse. And right. I think there's some of that going on with Essel and Dell. And also I just like guys who shoot the puck really hard. He's just fun to watch. And so, yes, 
Fair point. <laughs> oh, so you must be really pumped up about uh, when this player tracking data releases shot velocity oh, for players. You're gonna be you're gonna be just cranking those out on all your columns. <laughs> um, yeah, the uh, the player tracking thing will be fascinating to see how that plays out. I think that we're gonna have to be pretty skeptical. Mm. Um, you know, I'm hoping we get something like uh, pitch FX. For, yep. for goalies, for example, or uh, pitch FX for shooters. I think that'd be fun. Yep. Um, but I think, you know, it's it's going to be years before we know what's predictive and what's what's simply descriptive. And it's going to be really fun to watch guys say that X player is great because he skates, you know, 20 miles per hour uh, oh, over the next year. I can't wait to be debating the launch angles on player shots. And, oh my goodness. Yeah, the velocity. Yeah, it's exciting. Um, <laughs> all right, let's take, a, let's take a quick break here to hear from a sponsor, and then we're going to keep this conversation going on the other end of things. Sponsoring today's episode of the Hockey PDO cast is SeatGeek. Now that we're finally mercifully getting out of the dog days of the summer and transitioning towards the fall, there's so many fun sporting events to look forward to. Obviously, the NHL is starting back up, the NBA is starting back up, the NFL is starting back up. There's going to be, you know, the baseball pennant races and playoffs upcoming. There's just so much good stuff to check out. And that's why it's going to make it crucial for those of you who still haven't given SeatGeek a shot to finally do so because they are really your one-stop shop for all your ticketing needs. Whether it's sports, as all the stuff that I mentioned, or live music, comedy, Anything else you can think of, any event that you'd like to go to, SeatGeek probably has the seats for it. So just go and check for the tickets you're looking for, and they're going to have it all in one place. They've built the fastest way to find tickets so you can stop searching for the perfect seat and start enjoying it. They pull millions of tickets together from all over the web into one place, rate each of them on a deal based on a scale of 1 to 10, and then they display them all in an interactive seat map. So all you have to do is basically look for the green dots, which indicate that it's a good deal. You stay away from the red dots, which indicate overpriced tickets. And then you pick where you want to sit and you check out and you're good to go. And you can rest easy knowing that every purchase with SeatGeek is fully guaranteed. So you can shop for tickets on confidence, knowing that what you're paying for is what you're going to get. I've got the SeatGeek app on my phone and I've found time and time again that it's by far the fastest and easiest way to find tickets. I've been using it this summer to go to various concerts. Uh, I will be using it this fall when I'm traveling. Uh, if I'm in a city to watch a game, I will make sure to go on SeatGeek first pretty much to see what's what's out there, what I can get and what I can check out on any night off. So I highly recommend SeatGeek. Any tickets you're looking for, they're the place you want to go to. And if that's not enough, as a listener of the PDO cast, Seeky's going to sweeten the pot for you even further by giving you $10 off your first purchase with them. All you have to do to cash in on that is just let them know we sent you. So enter the promo code PDO. And once you download the Seeky app and use the promo code PDO, you're going to get $10 off your first purchase. That's promo code PDO for $10 off your first purchase. Now let's get back to Thomas Drance and the PDO cast. All right. So I've tried to do some reading this summer. Um, you know, during the season, especially like the playoffs and then free agency and the draft, it just, you kind of have to like go into a hockey bunker and I, I don't have time to do anything else. And then this summer I've been trying to spend some time outdoors and I've been doing a bit of reading and, and I finally, um, you know, got into reading range by David Epstein, which was re- recommended to me by any number of people. And I'm only like 40 or 50 pages in right now, but I just find, um, the content matter so interesting from, um, relating it to sports, but especially hockey, which wasn't the intention of that piece. But for those that haven't read it, it basically sort of posits this idea that, um, you know, we've been kind of taught as a society that you need to be like hyper specialized and you need to be like, you just need to pick one thing to be good at it and then just keep doing it over and over again until you become a quote unquote expert. And that's all you're going to be good at. And 
Epstein basically completely brings that down and sort of just argues that the people who actually try a bunch of different things and bounce around different jobs and, and, you know, work on different skills are going to be better suited in the long run because they're going to approach whatever their final job winds up being or whatever thing they're doing next from like a different, unique, fresh perspective. And I've given that a lot of thought from, uh, you know, the idea of hockey front offices and executives and, you know, most recently, as we were mentioning with Paul Fenton being fired by the wild and then, then bringing in Bill Guerin, you see a lot of these hires where, you know, at least in Bill Guerin's case, this is his first time doing this particular job and he's relatively young, uh, so to speak. And, and so we don't know that he's not going to be a good GM, I guess. Sometimes you see, especially with coaches, there's a lot of like recycling and a lot of turnover. It's like, oh, this guy's failed at three different stops, but this time's going to be different because he's a hockey coach and, and you see a lot of that. And I just, I, I don't know. I'm, I, I want to get into this conversation with you because I, I have a feeling that you're going to have an interesting take on it that might be different from mine. But this idea to me that you have to have played professional hockey to be qualified to be an NHL GM is so wild because no pun intended, I guess no with the Minnesota <laughs> wild, but like just this to make it to the NHL, you have to be in like what, like the top, like 1% of like athletes, top 1% of 1%. Yeah. Really. You have to be a, like a remarkable athlete just to even play any level of pro hockey and then get it to get to the NHL. So you have, you're basically blessed with a certain physical skill set, And then to be an NHL GM or a high-ranking executive, you don't really use that skill set at all. You use a completely different set of skills with your thought process, your asset management, your, you know, especially for a GM, you're dealing with so many different things and juggling them all at the same time as a business person. And you require this entire different set of skills. And so basically, if you're saying that this person is one of the best 31 options to do that job, you're saying that they are also an even rarer breed in a completely different skill set. And that is just, when you think of it that way, I'm just like, how could you possibly make the argument that a form, just because a guy's a former player, he's suited to be an NHL GM? What do you think about that? Yeah, I think the fact of the matter is that it's going to be the skills outside of what they were probably largely evaluated by, um, even in interviewing, uh, that determine success or not. And, you know, I know this is, um, a hobby horse for, for a lot of people, uh, and, and rightly so. I mean, I think the level of, uh, homogeneity in NHL GMs, GM hires is pretty remarkable. I think the level of homogeneity, when you look across the NHL draft floor and, you know, it's striking. Yep. And so, I mean, there's no question that there's got to be something going on and something that's probably ultimately not super efficient in terms of identifying uh, the best talent for the job. You know, I think that hockey is relatively unique in North American sports terms and that we've obviously seen baseball and basketball um, go sort of in a different direction. Football, it seems to mostly be football guys as GMs, mm -hmm. though also the role of GM in, in football is pretty distinct in that owners and coaches seem to be a much bigger deal yes. in the NFL yep. than, than your GM. But if you look overseas and, and look at soccer, for example, you know, it seems like a lot of the guys who managed transfers were former players and, and certainly a lot of, certainly the best 
football coaches in the world right now in, in Pep Guardiola and uh, Jurgen Klopp um, were players as well. So, you know, there is, I think, a sense that um, it helps to lead. If, if you're trying to lead a group of hockey specialists, including a coach who played and scouts who mostly played and um, on and on, uh, you know, players, even players, right? I think it probably helps to be a member of the club. Uh, it helps to have been through what um, players go through, what scouts went through in their playing career and, and on and on. I think that's sort of part of it in an organization where, you know, your hockey operations department is 90% former players. I think to lead that department, you need to probably have that crucial bona fide. Um, so but I don't know say, that who says you need to have all of those members of your hockey ops. department. Well, so that's what I'm saying. Okay. I'm saying yeah, yeah. the issue to me is likely not at the top right. where, where we're giving it the attention. Um, so much as it's probably a little bit further down the tree. Right. Um, and so that would be, that would be sort of my, the sentiment that, that I'd suggest to you as, as a rejoinder, um, in looking at the analysis of the composition of, of NHL GMs. Well, see, cause it's like, I think from like a coaching perspective, let's say, I think I understand the argument where you would need to be a former player to be a head coach because while there's a certain element of like, yeah, you could come up with all these groundbreaking tactics and, and sort of schematic things that could lead to better offense, you do need to kind of like have been in those shoes before to relate to the players and to speak to them on their terms and to sort of be able to manage those personalities and walk into the room and command their attention. And so I get it from that angle. I think from like a front office perspective though, where, I mean, obviously you're interacting with the players and the people beneath you on a daily basis. But at the same time, just in terms of like the job description, there is a human element to it, but it is also, you are running a multi multi million dollar business that um, I think requires a certain business acumen that I find crazy that um, owners are enlisting or entrusting in people who used to play the sport. I don't know. I don't know. Like it doesn't necessarily no, mean we've seen, fair. listen, like Steve Eiserman and Joe Sackick's doing a great job right now with, with the abs. Like we've seen former players clearly succeed in that position. And, and usually they were with the organization in some capacity before. And so, you know, with Bill Guerin, he was with the, with the penguins and he was their assistant GM and he was working with the AHL team. And so he's certainly not unqualified, but I just think that like when you're, you're basically eliminating such a large percentage of the population that might be just as qualified, if not more, to focus on this one certain subset of uh, predominantly middle-aged white guys. Um, and it just seems crazy to me that they, you would make the anyone would make the argument that they're the only ones suited for the job. And it seems like the, I guess the only reason we do it that way is because we've always done it that way. Like, is but have we? I think the percentage of GMs who are former players now is higher than it was, you know, mm. certainly back in the original right. six days or, you know, I don't know. I don't know if Sam Pollock has a hockey DB page, <laughs> but if, if he does, it's not significant. Um, you know, we all know Scotty Bowman stopped playing, um, result of a head injury when he was, you know, in his late teens, or early twenties, um, and on and on. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think that, I think that we might be So you're saying it's getting worse. I, I'm saying it might be a relatively new development right. that it's, that it's, basically exclusively the domain of the player. And then the last other point that I'd make, and, and this isn't a defense so much as just to add a layer of context, is while the NB, uh, the NHL CBA is complicated and certainly is best 
uh, understood by a lawyer or, mm-hmm. or certainly someone with an MBA or uh, certainly someone who's with a keen attention to detail right. at the very least. The fact of the matter is that the NHL with a hard cap system and um, relatively simple math that governs things like AAV, um, you know, it's nowhere near as complicated as the NBA or, or the MLB CBA. Right. Um, so, you know, I don't think it's a huge surprise that what we've seen in those other sports um, hasn't happened here because the fact of the matter is there's a level of business specialization required to understand um, the NBA and, and the MLB, uh, the rules of the road, as it were, uh, that simply isn't to understand the NHL CBA uh, front to back. So I think that's part of it too. I think that it is a league that for a variety of reasons has lent itself to, um, you know, the sort of singular type of candidate that we're, we're discussing. NHL GMing. So easy. Anyone could do it, but only a certain number of people are allowed to do it. (laughs) Well, you know, and, and honestly, just as a thought exercise, and this isn't me saying, uh, anything, I don't want to get radioed here. Not that I'm a big enough deal to be radioed, but yeah, no one's transcribing um, this. Yeah, good. No one's, I appreciate that. The fact of the matter is you have to look at, you know, if we're talking about GMs in particular, what do former players in, in particular have that not form, former people who haven't played don't, um, you know, it, it is a certain presence, right? It is a certain ability to, um, appeal to business people, right? There's a reason why teams keep a variety of former players around, not just to work in hockey operations, but to glad hand and to, um, you know, make connections within their city and to talk to season ticket holders and big name sponsors. It's exciting to be around players you rooted for. Um, that's, uh, that's part of this as well. And the other point that I'd make that I think matters a lot is, you know, I I came from an organization, obviously, in Florida that had a a variety of former players, but also a variety of former uh, military guys. Mm -hmm. And I do think there is a certain singular um, effectiveness, perhaps. That's what I'll say. There's a certain effectiveness that I think lends itself relatively naturally to people who've participated in team environments, both in the military and and in professional sports, where you've worked in a team environment toward a singular collective goal. And there've been a variety of factors that have gone into the success or failure of that goal. But ultimately, um, you're being judged in real time with real consequences um, constantly, right? Day to day. Um, Obviously, the stakes are significantly different from one to the other. But I think that um, brushing up against reality is the same. And, you know, one thing that I think people don't remember enough about the NHL is you got a 23-man roster. Uh, you got 50 contracts. There's essentially 50 guys, 50 players in any NHL team who every shift of their life are going through a job evaluation, right? Uh, an interview process, as it were, right? And whether they're interviewing for two extra shifts in the third period of a close game or, um, you know, for an all-star team or for a $10 million a year contract, I mean, they're constantly under um, evaluation and they're constantly judged on results that sometimes are beyond their control, but that are real and that happen immediately. And I do think that going through that can create people with 
um, you know, a singular focus, an understanding of what it takes to succeed as a, as a group. And, um, you know, that that's not to be ignored either. I do think that people with military and, and team professional, high level professional sporting experience do tend to make uh, good executives naturally. And yeah. that, that's the other uh, thing I'd say, and, and that's not even necessarily just GMs, that's team presidents, right. um, that's, you know, um, executives running a car dealership and, and on and on down the line. I mean, I think that is a real thing, too. Yeah, no, I, I'm not. Listen, I'm not making the argument that there's no place in an NHL front office for former players. Um, I just think that if you've kind of broadened your horizons or, or the scope of uh, your GM search, I think sometimes it would lead to interesting results. You do at least different sort of thought processes or ideas. Like that's why I'm, I'm really um, going to be watching closely to see um, how Ralph, Ralph Kruger does this year with the Sabres and sort of what they do, because I'm sure that, you know, having been away from the NHL for a couple of years and being in a completely different sport and completely different environment, like I imagine he's going to come in with some interesting ideas rather than just sort of the same old stuff and recycling everything we've seen NHL teams do year in and year out. So I'm not sure it might not lead to immediate results. It might wind up backfiring. He might wind up getting fired. But I just love the idea that like something different and out of the ordinary is happening for a team that hasn't had the results they've wanted and they're trying to do something new in the pursuit of changing their fortunes. Uh, no, absolutely. And, and, you know, the lack of innovation across North American professional sports is frustrating. I mean, I think that's genuinely um, something that we see. And that's not just hockey. I, I think that's and, and I, it's not just North American professional sports. I think it's any setup where you are at least to some extent rewarded for failure, right. um, you know, with high draft picks yeah. and, and on and on. I, I mean, I think there is a genuine lack of structural incentive to innovate. Uh, I think that's a real thing. And it's unfortunate because from a storytelling perspective, it means that there's less weird stuff to cover. You yeah. know, it would be awesome just from just purely from a storytelling perspective to show up at a training camp one year and a coach is like, well, we're going with four forwards all the time, right? right. Like that would just be fun. Yeah. I mean, it might not work out, um, but it would, uh, it would be a lot of fun to see a coach be like, yeah, we're going to play a full season playing the torpedo system. Let's, right. let's see how it works out. I mean, you know, sign me up from a, from a driving subscriptions perspective <laughs> anyway. Um, all right. You know, this podcast is, is nothing else if not topical. And, right. you know, with Andrew Luck, um, you know, sending some serious shockwaves through, I guess, the sporting world and, and Twitter and, 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 and society in terms of his decision to walk away from the Colts and the NFL at the age of 29 and leave millions and millions of dollars on the table and sort of led to this whole conversation. And, and you know, we've been talking about this for a long time with the NBA in terms of this, quote unquote, player empowerment era and sort of how players are finally taking control and you see star players that are you know stuck in uh, a less than uh, optimal situation on their current team kind of force the team's hand to move them to somewhere else where they want to play with either a buddy of theirs or where they think they can thrive more or you know grow their brand or or any, any number of things and you know that's clearly something that we haven't seen in nhl yet because the best player in the world has been playing on a team that's not going anywhere and hasn't made the playoffs in two years despite two uh historically great seasons from him and I, if you're waiting for Connor McDavid to force the Oilers' hand and do something drastic, um, well, good luck to you. But I can't see that happening anytime soon. Um, but it, so I'm, I'm really like kind of curious to spin that towards um, a discussion for the NHL, though, in terms of you know a hot topic this summer has been especially with all of the RFAs, and you know we're heading into September now, and a bunch of the big names still are waiting for contracts and we'll see how much of that is posturing and how much of that is actually going to 
trickle into the regular season. But, you know, last year we saw with Willie Nylander, he waited till the final deadline to finally sign his deal. And I wouldn't be surprised to see more and more of that as players really fight for what's theirs and fight for more control and more power at an earlier stage of their career, which we haven't really seen in NHL in the past. So I don't know, like we can take that in a number of ways, but just what's, what interests you the most from that angle of like all of these ideas finally coming into the NHL and players really sort of putting their foot down and asserting themselves more and, and looking out for themselves as opposed to that sort of idea of like no one player is greater than the team and you have to kind of fall in line. And, and if you're a star player, take a, take a hometown discount so that other players can get paid. Like that's just, some of these ideas are just like, I get them and they're really noble, I guess. But um, especially with how long a player's career can be, especially in a brutal sport like hockey, where it takes one unfortunate head injury or spill and you can never be the same player again. Like I'm all for players really um, fighting for themselves and getting as much as they can out of there while they still can. I think you touched on a really interesting factor in uh, how brutal the NHL is and, and how much risk you're taking on, um, you know, playing a sport where you put knives on your feet and a weapon in your hand and um, vulcanized rubber pucks zip around the ice at 90 plus miles per hour. And, uh, you know, all the terrible things that can happen in, in a collision sport like that. Um, you know, I do think there's an extent to which players, you know, fear uh, or not fear. That's the wrong word. But players are cognizant of the risks that they're taking yeah. and, and tend to take money earlier and and the guarantee of that money i mean that's i think a big part of the reason why guaranteed money is such an issue for the pa anytime you get into um cba talks labor talks um with the nhl in particular and i think that sort of um gets into the andrew luck thing pretty naturally too i think you know for an nfl player where there is no guaranteed money and um you know where in Luck's case, there's been some significant injuries and a ton of work. I mean, that's another thing, like the amount of rehab that an athlete does and, yeah. and how gruesome it is to get back to, you know, and, and again, they're functioning at a level well beyond what I am um, as a, you know, overweight man um, I, I, to get back to the level they need to be to be uh, competent on the field of play. I mean, you know, obviously I worked with, uh, Luongo for the past three years and, and saw firsthand what he had to do after his hip surgeries. And, um, not that he was as young as Andrew Luck. Um, you know, I mean, it's the level of commitment it takes and, and how, how brutal it is to just spend that much time on the table, spend that much yeah. time going through your core usually exercises. Usually in isolation, like you're not doing that with other players. Like yeah, especially when, once you're hurt, yeah. right. Uh, you're, you're often away from the team until you're good enough to skate and, um, yeah, no, it's, it's savage, man. I mean, it's, I, I completely understand why players would do it that way, but I also do think that that's a big reason we haven't seen, and, and this is for the podcast connoisseurs listening, but we haven't seen an NHL player exercise their pre-agency to this mm. point, right? That yep. just, you know, hasn't happened. Yep. Um, at least not in, in recent memory. So, yeah, I mean, look, I, I think it's fun to have player movement. I think, that's easy for fans and, and for us to say, I think it's extremely disruptive for the, for the lives and the families of the players themselves. Right. But um, player movement, I think is good for the league. And I think that's been good for the NBA, but um, you know, and, and I think good for the NBA players getting themselves paid and, yeah. and on and on. I mean, it, it's fun to watch. It's fun to follow. It's fun to report on. Uh, it's fun to read. Uh, I think it makes for good podcast fodder. I think that the stones it takes for an NHL player to, behave that way um you know with the stakes at play i I think it's really high but i do 
watch this group of second year guys, second contract guys, and think that, um, you know, especially with the Nylander example, um, there's going to be some people who are emboldened. I think, you know, Nylander took it to the brink and got paid. I yeah. mean, he, he, he really did well. He got what he wanted. Yeah. And, you know, so I, I think that emboldens players to some extent, and it should. And then, you know, the underlying debate that these players are mostly going to be having with their teams. And, you know, we saw with Austin Matthews signing the five-year, um, you know, sort of a, a miniature version of this is, you know, it's in a player's best interest to sign a deal that's like five years long, right. because if they're willing to gut it out and willing to risk that they're going to stay healthy, um, you know, hitting the market as a 26 or 27 year old free agent um, means an awful lot. And if you're a team, you know, your best bet is to buy out a player through the age of 20, 27, 28 and, you know, milk the best years of their career at a lower than um, a lower rate than their market value would dictate were they completely free to sell their labor after the expiry of their entry level contract. So, you know, that's a pretty significant separation and, and the NHL doesn't have a mechanism to force any resolution. And I suspect we'll hear a lot more about that as we get into CBA talks over the next little bit, uh, over the next 12 months. But yeah, I mean, it'll be fascinating to see. I'd be shocked at this point if any of these second year guys sign before training camp and there are significant knock on effects for the rest of the league. Um, I think a lot of the veteran players who haven't been signed are grumpy about it. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of teams who, you know, will be waiting for those dominoes to fall before making some moves they might otherwise have made. And, um, you know, there's a certain stasis that that brings to the league that I don't think is particularly helpful. And obviously we're looking at a situation where teams might be charging full price for preseason games, certainly across Canada, but, but in, uh, markets like Columbus and Boston, uh, and on and on as well, um, where you're going to a preseason game and there's literally zero chance that you're going to get to watch your Zach Wierenski or your Matthew Kachuk or your Kyle Connor. Um, that's not good for anybody. So it'll be interesting to monitor. I, I think we might get to a situation like we had with the uh, major league baseball last year, where there's you know, a variety of really, really high-end players unsigned uh, when the games start to matter. And, you know, uh, there's just no way that's good for anybody. Yeah, I mean, right now we have the 11th, 12th, 17th, and 31st leading scorers from last year without contracts. <laughs> yeah. Just waiting, not to mention any number of other guys like Patrick Laine, Brock Besser, Zach Wierenski, so on totally. and so forth. Uh, and, and that's also, like, completely quantitative, not qualitative. Yeah. Like, the goals that this group scored were beauties, oh, right? Like, they're, no. they're so and, entertaining. And in theory, they're about to enter their best years. Right, exactly. Yes. It's... It would be a massive shame yeah. to lose meaningful games from any of the any single one of these guys. Well, that, that's what made uh, like what Sebastian Ajo and his agent did such a masterful thing. Where it's like it was so funny this entire dialogue of like, does he want to go to Montreal? What does this mean? Are the Hurricanes cheap? And it's like, no. Well, I mean, he just wanted to get paid for a shorter period of time so that he could become a free agent when he's reaching his peak years or when he can maximize his earning power. And he found someone who was going to oblige him for that. And he basically got the best of both worlds. He gets to stay in Carolina and he got what he wants. Yeah. And I would love to incent. And how old will he be when he's a, a UFA? I think 26, 26. Yeah, I mean, like 27, so, yeah, 26, so he could look at another yeah. 80 plus million dollar oh, contract. Yeah, Cause yeah. if Aho continues to do what I certainly think Aho can do for the next five years, 
he's going to be another, you know, probably seven, seven years, 10 plus. So at least 70, probably closer to 75. Um, and so, you know, whereas if he was 29, I mean, he still maybe gets that amount, but increasingly I think teams are yeah, leery of it, yeah. right? Certainly after the, uh, after the free agency class of the memorable free agency oh, class of 2016, yeah. I, I do think there's a, a certain level of gun shy. Um, there, there's a certain level of awareness that you can't sign those old guys to that, that amount. So, you know, in, in an environment where teams aren't going to be handing out your Lucic contracts and your Ericsson contracts, um, that creates even further leverage or f- further incentive for your second contract guy to keep it short. And, you know, that results in an impasse. And I I do suspect something structurally will need to be done to sort of just just any mechanism that results in uh, resolution or that drives resolution. Arbitration is obviously a super effective one. Mm -hmm. Uh, That said, you know, I don't know how effective the NHL arbitration system is these days. We see a lot of really good players go unqualified, which to me says that something needs to be tweaked there, too. But um fact of the matter is that, you know, without any device to force a resolution except for the, what is December 1st, right? Yep. The December 1st deadline, um, you know, these could drag on. And I, I just think that's a damn shame. Yeah, it is for everyone involved. And, and you know, in terms of the, like the parallels with the NBA, what we've seen a lot is, is a lot of the star players and the higher profile players have sort of acknowledged they're kind of like, I mean, both are... Um, They've used their leverage and they understand the power that they wield because of how good they are at the sport they're playing and how few players can do what they can do on the court. And also they're acknowledging, I think, their mortality too as as athletes where it's like you have a certain amount of time to do as much winning as you can to build your legacy and to be you know, held in a conversation with the other greats that came before you. And that's a conversation we don't really get into that much in hockey in terms of like comparing like, oh, like Sidney Crosby, like how much like... And, you know, that's an do. interesting subject. It's like the greatest player ever is settled, right? Yeah. It's like it's Gretzky or Orr, depending on what camp you are. But it was like that in basketball too. And then now LeBron's kind of forcing his way into it against Jordan, right? I think but, for a but, long time, you would have thought no one's ever going to touch Jordan. Yeah, it's true. Okay, fair enough. But but so this yeah. is what I'm saying. Like, uh, let's say with McDavid right now, who's still early in his career and, and you know has one second round appearance, hasn't done anything. I don't know how many more what does he have six more, seven more years in Edmonton that he signed up yeah. for at below market value, basically for his skill set. Like the fact that. Well, yeah, we haven't even touched on the fact that I think we would both agree that the best players in the league are significantly underpaid. Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. no, that's an entirely different conversation. But yeah. this idea of like players being like listen, like we're going to contribute on the field or in this case on the ice, but we're going to keep the pressure on the team and the organization to keep putting us in a position to succeed by building a winning group around us. And if they don't, we're going to go elsewhere where we can accomplish that. And that's why we see a lot of NBA players signing like one, two-year deals with an out clause where if it's not going the way they want, they can go somewhere else. So I just think NHL teams would freeze you out. I think NBA, NBA teams, you know, the uh, New Orleans Pelicans have obviously cleaned up this offseason, partly because they didn't blink when Anthony Davis told them to, right? Yeah. They were like, nah, whatever, we'll, we'll hold on to you for the, till the draft. Now, they got lucky they won the draft lottery, which kind of changed their leverage, right. all, all told. But, I mean, the, the level of assets that they've accumulated since winning uh, the Zion lottery is, is unbelievable, like hard to imagine. Um, I, think the, I think NBA teams blink too often 
personally, just in, in the player empowerment era. And, you know, I think that the Kawhi trade's another good example of it. I think, you know, Kawhi was miserable. San Jose traded the last year of his, uh, or San, San Jose, Jose, San, San Jose. Wow. Excuse me. Um, we've been going cross sports yeah. too much and yeah, it's yeah. obviously affected my brain. Yeah. So San Antonio blinked, um, and sent him, I mean, granted he held out an entire season. Right. So, you know, you'd, you wouldn't blame, um, you wouldn't blame them for it, but, um, you know, you, you read back and like the Boston Celtics were like, no, Jalen Brown for Kawhi, like no way. Um, you know, uh, the 76ers similarly were just right. unwilling to deal. Um, I think faults. part of that was, also, were, it was false concerns, it was though, false, right? though. I think faults. Right. You can't tell me it's health concerns when we're talking about faults. No, of course. Yeah. That was a bad, decision. I mean, you know, there was a huge risk, but the point is, is that I think that, um, teams blink, uh, you know, teams were too worried about a willful player in that circumstance. Um, and I think that's, uh, you know, something that NBA teams have generally done. They've acceded pretty quickly to players' wishes. And I actually think NHL teams just wouldn't. I think there are a variety of NHL teams where if a player was like, oh, I want to, I want to be traded, uh, you know, because it happens pretty regularly. Yeah. They'd just be like, no, well, we'll, we'll trade you when it works for us. Like, I just think that NHL teams are a little more, well, it, it makes sense because there's fewer players who, make this kind of impact that your LeBron's, your Anthony right. Davis's do. But I think NHL teams would tell players to go stuff it. I mean, I really do think there's a, there's a hard math, um, at play there too. I think for like a middle tier player, yes. I think if Connor McDavid right now was like, I'm never playing another game in Edmonton, it would, I, but it would be they like would, they would, they would six not. months. It would be six months of a media circus. Yeah. Right. And think about how hockey people cover PK Subban's Instagram stories. Right. Right. Now imagine Connor McDavid does like a huge public campaign to get dealt. I mean, look, great story, fun to cover, but the way that it would be covered and the way that it would be dealt with in terms of his legacy, um, you know, who would, who wants that? I mean, I, I just, I just think that ultimately Edmonton would still have so many things that so many cards to play in that situation. Um, well, you they know, do and, because he's a sucker who signed a ridiculous team-friendly contract. So they do have a lot of leverage now. They control him for the next however many years. Yeah. If he was a free agent next year, I think they'd be pretty worried. Right. Sure. Sure. Well, and you know, we'll see. We'll see how it goes as that comes to bear. And right. As he what, remains. what I'm saying is, there's no, there's no, there's no organizational accountability. Like we make fun of the Oilers for their mediocrity and how laughably <laughs> they built a team around him. But in theory, they could just keep doing this and keep getting away with it, right? Like, there's no well, they have Connor McDavid cannot they have force with, their hand exactly with a full with a full right. generation, which of- is why I'm so interested in you know keeping it with the Oilers. Obviously, a player of uh, much lesser stature, and as a result, he has way less leverage. But by all accounts, Jesse Puliarvi was basically like, I. Don't want to be here anymore. You know, it's the Western Canadian in me where I've been like a little reticent to say anything too controversial on this podcast. And mm. then all of a sudden you're bashing the Oilers and I'm like, yeah, you know what? Fuck Alberta teams. <laughs> <laughs> but but so that's why I'm, I'm so interested because basically and listen, they got a new coach. They have a new GM mm-hmm. and he's still like, I just don't have any faith that my career is going to go the way that I want it to here. And he just, he's basically like, I'm just picking up and going to Finland until you guys find another team for me. Oh, Jesse Pugliarvi. Yeah. Yeah. He, yeah, for sure. And I thought that was an interesting move. I I like the NHL out through December 1st. Yeah. Right. So he's created his own mini deadline. Right. Um, I just don't think there's value there. That's the problem. Like I just. For who? For anyone. Like I think the Oilers take a pretty significant black eye. 
um, from dealing him. You know what I mean? Like you, you almost might rather retain his rights if he goes over to Liga and crushes, you know, say he's the leading scorer in Liga at the age of 22, right? Fine. We still have your rights. Like you still can't come back without us. So, you know, sign here's, here's your offer. You haven't played in the league in a year. You're not helping your leverage no matter what you do over there. Right. Like the best player, his age who was undrafted in, in Liga, like they're a two year entry level guy. You know what I mean? Like there's not a ton of leverage that he's going to gain, even if he goes over there and is like 50 points in 30 games. I mean, that helps him a bit, but it doesn't help him a ton. Right. And, you know, if Edmonton, what Edmonton's going to deal him for a second, I'd wait it out. If I was them, if I was them, I'd wait it out. I don't think there's any incentive to make that deal. And I don't even think you're getting a second from him for him because I don't think he's highly rated. And I don't think teams around the league appreciate this level of hardball. Uh, So, you know, I don't know how this plays out. I, I suspect that his trade value is not very high. Hmm. I suspect that the deal he's made doesn't help the Edmonton Oilers get the kind of return that would move him on anyway. And, you know, I, I'm, I'll be interested to see if this gets resolved. But, you know, I think it's pretty tempting. Uh, this is a player who's more valuable to you if he hits, right, than anything you're going to deal, even at this juncture. Um, you deal him for yes. even at this juncture, and, and you're definitely not getting anything of blue blue chip value. So why not let him go play in Liga for a year and then do it again next summer? I, I mean, unless the unless the PR headache is truly something you're not willing to deal with, right? Um, I don't I don't see why he's put I don't see how he's put them in put the Oilers in a bind that um, I wouldn't be willing to wait out. Counterpoint: I think if you're the Oilers, it's a pretty big L for you to have nothing to show from Yessi Puliarvi in, in another season, waste another season of Conor McDavid. Sure, but you've got a new management team. You've got a management no, team course. who and has they, And no... that's why they've afforded themselves... Well, the and if they... your best offer on the table is a third-round pick, yeah. no, of like, course. great, this guy might help McDavid in his last year with our team. You know what I'm saying? Like, what, I, I just don't see... I don't see the pressure on, on Ken Holland in particular to jump into a bad deal. I just think... And, and it, maybe it's just another L for Peter Shirelli, I guess, but the fact that like <laughs> this team is so starved for wing talent to help out their two best players, and right. they have this guy who they took fourth overall, who by all accounts, like he profiles as the perfect type of player. Oh, like, yeah. like 6'4", can skate, has scored in the lower levels. Had, had excellent like defensive chops and, and, when coming and into the league. So to have nothing to show for that this year and another year, potentially, look, like they're like looking down the barrel for another year of... Connor McDavid potentially winning the MVP, leading the league in scoring, and then missing the playoffs. Like, that is just so insane to me. And they didn't do anything this summer. And part of it was because they were, were handcuffed by Peter Shirley's moves. Do, yeah. But, like, you look at it, they didn't add, like, they added Mike Smith and Martin the Worst M. Granlund. And right. that's all they did to a team that was not anywhere near the playoffs last year. Like, it's so wild to me. They were just, we're like bringing the band back together. It's like, oh my God. Well, yeah. I mean, they got James Neal too. Let's remember that. That was a and the fork sticking out of his back. <laughs> sure, he is washed. <laughs> okay, yes. sure, but also probably better. Oh, suited to their team yes, than what yeah, they traded yes, yeah. for. I think, him, I think they, well, they could still get twenty goals out of him for sure. Yeah, right, yeah, and huge. Um, huge. Yeah. I mean, for them, and you know, Jesse Pugliarvi again. I don't think his stocks 
super high around the league. So, you know, at this point, do you think it's a better resolution for the Oilers to trade a third for Jesse Pugliarvi or let him walk and, and see what happens? Like, at this juncture, if the best offer, and I don't know what the best offer is, uh, uh, you know, at the be- if the best offer for Jesse Pugliarvi on the table right now is a third-round pick, objectively, what do you advise Ken Holland to do? Do you advise him to wait it out and see what happens, or do you advise him to make to take that deal? Yeah, advise wait it out and see what happens. Right. Definitely don't so, take a low-ball offer. But I, I think it's crazy. Like without, no, one's, no one's giving them no, a, believe, anything but a low-ball offer. Tom, without being privy to the conversations that happen, it's so crazy to me that they couldn't bring him back to play for this team with a new coach and a new GM yes. in place. And like, especially if they're like, listen, we promise we'll actually sign it on the contract. You have to exclusively play with Connor McDavid. <laughs> but you can't do that if he's not ready to play with Connor McDavid. He, Ty Ratty was playing with Connor McDavid. Alex right. Chasson was playing with Connor McDavid. I have a feeling Jesse Pugliarvi is capable of playing with Connor McDavid. Uh, maybe. I mean, it's, I think it's, you or I could probably play with Connor. McDavid. No, there's no chance I could play with Connor McDavid. Hang out around the net. <laughs> Keep a stick yeah. on your eye. If you if, if you actually do want to see the player empowerment era dawn in the NHL, yes. like the dawn of the era, yeah. would would be put me on uh, Connor McDavid's <laughs> way. No. Um, Dreisaitl is basically the only guy who can play yeah. with Connor McDavid on that team, which is too bad. But no, I, look, I think, um, yeah, I think that if I'm if I'm the Oilers, I'm not taking an anvil for Pugliarvi in the way that it's played out super publicly. I'd be tempted to call his bluff. And again, I think well, that's something. Have. Oh, and I think that's something that NHL teams are better situated to do than NBA teams. I think NBA teams should do it more. I think NBA teams probably don't. Um, I think the NBA teams are pushovers to their best players. And, um, you know, they they all share the trait of overrating the guys they drafted and, and their young guys and, and perhaps undervaluing super elite talent, as we've seen. Uh, but I also think that NHL teams are well, well, well positioned because of the vagaries of outcomes, right? Uh, because of how, ar- uh, not arbitrary, but how abstract uh, wins and losses can be in right. that league. Um, and because you need 23 guys on your roster, I think they're well situated despite guaranteed deals and on and on to wait guys out. And, and I wouldn't be shocked if Edmonton took that tack with, uh, with Jesse Pugliarvi. I, I don't think it's necessarily yeah. the wrong play. Well, I'll be see, curious to see how much that, uh, that landscape changes with this upcoming, uh, CBA conversation. Right. I, well, I and, like, and honestly, over the next six weeks, we're going to see a fantastic test case for it with this class of second contract guys. I yep. mean, um, especially if they kind of hold firm as a group and what that's going to do to the way we talk about hockey over the next, I mean, can you imagine what Twitter is going to be like on November 1st, if none of them are signed like Vancouver, Calgary, Winnipeg with two guys, Toronto, like the markets impact Boston, the markets impacted by this are like the perfect markets. If you're the PA and it'll just be fascinating to see how big a sore our Twitter feeds are on October 1st. If, if this keeps dragging out, if only there were a way that any of these other teams could jump in and sign these players to contracts, <laughs> if, if, if only that was a possibility, maybe things could, could change. A little bit. <laughs> yes. Um, if only Montreal <laughs> kept going, Just keep signing players. Um, I wish. Yeah. That'd be amazing. All right, Tom, let's, right. uh, let, Thanks, bud. let's, let's, let's put a, a pin in it here. And then, uh, now that you're back in Vancouver, I'm, I'm excited to, uh, 
you're gonna be a regular on this yeah podcast. good i want to be in the possible. i want to be in the rotation of super friends um and uh and you know obviously love the work you do and and happy to happy to be here thanks for having me so where can people follow you online oh people can follow me online at thomas drance and i've joined the athletic vancouver mm-hmm. so uh, i'd encourage you to sign up uh, we'll have some great content it'll be me and the boy genius um tackling the canucks this year with uh some some big plans to flesh out our team further and um, you won't want to miss Harmon on the road. It's going to be a, it's going to be a nice time. The best coverage of a 10th place team you'll ever find out. Oh there. yeah. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll kill it. Thomas, I'm, I'm glad we got to do this. Um, good luck with your new adventure and we'll chat soon. All right. Thanks, man. The Hockey PDO cast with Dmitry Filipovich. Follow on Twitter at Dim Filipovich and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash hockey PDO cast.